Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The classic tension between king and prophet in the Bible can only be understood in light of a third malevolent character. Like the king, this character stands in opposition to God even when it proclaims its love for the prophet. The mob, as we've said for weeks, has a part to play in human tyranny. In Matthew chapter 14, Herod's fear of this third party leads him into direct conflict with God's law. It really doesn't matter that the crowd reveres John the Baptist. Their perverse relationship with Herod, motivated by their own fears, can't but lead to destruction. As Jesus said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 310 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We shift now, Richard, to chapter 14 of the Gospel of Matthew. And we come back to Herod. At this point in the text, this ties us back to the first section of Matthew where we dealt with the birth of Jesus and Herod's anxiety over the potential of an heir to the throne of David. And of course, in Matthew, that's not what's going on. We are not concerned with David's throne per se. It's a bit of a hoax in the story, in the same way that the prophetic texts always play on our kingly expectations and our understanding of what glory is in a worldly sense. The Bible always plays on that and then twists it around. But still, we're left with Herod because at the end of the day, there's a confrontation in the New Testament always, just as in the Old Testament, between the one who brings the scroll forward to establish the authority of the father of Jesus and the one who has worldly authority and is anxious and nervous about the implications of the authority of the text. And it's a good point here to remind our listeners that the whole movement of Scripture was, in effect, a political movement against kingly, and now we know from Father Paul's The Rise of Scripture, against imperial power. So there's a lot packed here in this short story, if you will, about the prophet and the imposter king in the Gospel of Matthew. The distinction you're drawing is so important. We've been talking so much about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, ever since John the Baptist brought it up first in the beginning of Matthew, but even before that with the genealogy. And so here we get a taste of the kingdom of this world, and we get to see how Herod, the king, 
functions as an earthly king, how there is this inevitable conflict between the teaching of the kingdom of this world and the teaching of the kingdom of heaven. As you said, God's instruction versus this imposter king, this king who rules this land, who is not the king of the kingdom of heaven, who is not the king of glory, the true king. We have this mini standoff here in chapter 14 of Matthew between John the Baptist, who's always been the one to preach the kingdom of heaven. It's important here to mention, and we may have said this before, Richard, but I'll bring it up again, that the name Herod is much like the name Caesar or the name Pharaoh. There were many Herods. It was a dynasty, the Herodians. So that, in my ears, lends credibility to the notion that Matthew is dealing with the problem of king as imposter, and of course, in the specific case of Herod, as opposed to Caesar or Pharaoh. It's especially nasty because Herod is an imposter like the rest, sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. You can see in the story of Matthew why Herod would be especially nervous about what John is teaching, because if Jesus is the Messiah, the first to go are the Herodians. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Tetrarch is Tetraarchis. He's the governor of the fourth part of a region. That's his title. So though he claims that he's a king sitting on David's throne, in the eyes of the Romans, he's just a local head. He claims to be the ruler of God's people, but he's the vassal of the Romans. And then, of course, you have this word in English, servant, that appears again. Here, they translate the word pace the same way they translate the word doulos, and they say servant. Now, on the one hand, you could say that we all know that children are the equivalent of servants, or at least those terms are interchangeable in Greek and in Hebrew. But my point for our listeners always is to remember that because of the limitations of translation, you are unable to differentiate between the character, which we call servants in English here in the story of Herod, and the character, for example, of the slaves in the story of the wheat and the tares. And if you pay attention to this terminology in context of Paul's letters and also the historical setting of the Roman household, you know that the question of who is a son and an heir and who is not a son and an heir What's the difference between the children and the heir? What's the difference between the children, generally speaking, and the actual slaves in the household? These are important questions. Yeah, Father, I'm so happy you mentioned this because I think that being aware of the problem of translation, we all know that when we try to translate from one language to another, we're always going to lose something because we lose associations between words, which are normal in any language, but also since this is an ancient text, we lose signifiers of an ancient order, an ancient way of doing things, and ancient significations. Without those, we lose sight of some of the items that the author is trying to put forth. Another point about this verse is that Herod immediately goes from hearing about Jesus to John the Baptist. 
We've both been mentioning how much this idea of the kingdom of heaven has been going all throughout Matthew and has connected the first words of John the Baptist and the words of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven being at hand. And it's important that the character who reinforces this point is none other than Herod the Great, the Herod the Tetrarch. What Jesus is doing and what John the Baptist is doing are the same. So important that Herod sees this connection between Jesus and John the Baptist. This is something that we've noticed from the beginning, since John the Baptist was speaking, and then when Jesus began to teach, he was using the same words as John the Baptist, specifically about the kingdom of heaven. So Herod the Tetrarch is the first to recognize that this teaching is a threat to his rule, is a threat to his power, is a threat to who he is as a king. When he talks about, as you read, miraculous works, these are the mighty works, works of dynamis, as it is in Greek. This, according to Herod, is proof that John the Baptist is somehow still active. And in fact, John the Baptist is still active, but not necessarily through these works themselves, but through the teaching that John the Baptist began, that Jesus is continuing and expanding on and growing. In talking about these expressions of might or power, the connotation may be miraculous, but I think the question, of course, is strength when we're talking about the showdown between the king and the scroll. What's interesting is he talks about John having been raised from the dead. There's so much at stake in that statement because of the relationship between Jesus and Paul. We've said many times, citing Father Paul's commentary on the New Testament, on Paul and Mark, we've cited many times on this program over the years, the connection between Paul and John the Baptist. And one of the obvious tells, of course, is that Paul was beheaded and John the Baptist was beheaded. It's strange that John the Baptist was beheaded since that was a form of execution reserved for Roman citizens. So there's this connection, and we don't have to go into it in detail here. But if that's the case, suddenly the question about New Testament terminology is heightened. The story is indirectly bringing the relationship between Jesus and Paul to the forefront, because you can kill Paul, but you can't stop his gospel from spreading. Just like in the story of the gospels, you can try to lock Jesus up in a tomb. You can execute him and bury him, but you can't stop the scroll, the teaching from escaping Jerusalem and going out into the nations. You can't put up a wall. There's no border fence that can stop the teaching of Paul from going from one territory to the next territory. Herod wants to marry his sister-in-law. This is the wife of his brother. And as the king, of course, he can marry whoever he wants, just as a king can make anyone his son. The king has this absolute power to do whatever he wants. And anyone who would try to limit this power of the king does so at his own peril. Herod in verse 3, is doing to John the Baptist what the synagogue and the Romans will do to Jesus. He's tying him up. He's arresting him. He's tying him up and trying to essentially muffle him, stop him, shut him up, up to and including taking his life so that 
the pressure of the scroll is not brought to bear on the throne. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. I mean, this is universal literature. The king is angry at the prophet because he is pointing out to him that his behaviors are limited by the law of God. And what king wants to hear that? For heaven's sake, who wants to hear that? No one wants to hear that. No one wants to hear that there's a limit on their behavior. Therein lies the tension. A lot of people say, oh, nowadays we have no limits. Nowadays people will do whatever. Nowadays the coastal elites do whatever they want. Nowadays people let power go to their head. As we see, it doesn't have anything to do with what days you're living in. It has to do with power. When you're the king, you can do whatever you want. I mean, this is Mel Brooks. You know, it's good to be the king. Now, what John the Baptist says, it's not allowed. Uk existing. It is not allowed for you to do this. John the Baptist only cares about one thing, and that's the kingdom of heaven. When he brings up this pesky kingdom of heaven to the king of this world, there's this inevitable clash because the king in this world is the law. And to suppose that there is some law over him, that there's something disallowed to him, is the base of this essential tension. Before we talk about verse 5, Rich, I'd like to go back to verse 1 and just point out an oddity that underscores the interplay between John and Jesus and Matthew, and then, of course, by extension, Jesus and Paul in the New Testament story arc. Because Herod heard the news about Jesus and said to his children, this is John the Baptist. I mean, it's really striking. It's really striking. You have to pay attention to what's actually being said Matthew is trying to sow the seed in your mind that this is about the confrontation in the judgment when Jesus comes in power and he's playing around with the interplay between characters and then he goes into the story of the beheading. It's a very interesting structure to the section. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. The mob has a part to play in tyranny. So you have Herod who thinks he has power. You have the prophet who represents the power of God's law, who is bringing the power of God's law to bear on the throne. But the throne isn't subject to God's law. The throne is subject to the mob, what the people want. So Matthew is telling you flat out, that if you try to please the people, you're going to end up with Herod. This is what it is. Herod's a coward. He's afraid of the prophet. He's afraid of the people. And unfortunately in the story, he's more afraid of the people. Because we all know that the power of the throne comes from our sycophancy. We give power to the government. The reason we trade whatever we think we have in exchange for the power of Herod is because of what you've mentioned many times from the minor prophets, that we want security. So Herod has something the people want, and he is afraid of them. They have something he needs in order to maintain his throne, and so they enter into a partnership of abuse that shuts out, and in the story here, results in the execution 
of the one who's bringing the real value and the real power into the equation. I think you hit the nail on the head, and I'm always grateful when we can take the time to really go through these verses and pick apart the power dynamics. When John the Baptist teaches a teaching to Herod, he ignores it, which means he's not afraid. Because he's the king, he can do what he wants. But when the crowd disallows him to do something he wants, he's afraid. He wants to kill John the Baptist. When John the Baptist tells him you can't have him as a wife, he says, who are you to tell me? I'm the king. But if the crowd says to him, hey, you can't kill John the Baptist. He's our prophet. And he's like, uh, okay, 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 okay. And then he holds back or he tries to do something in secret. The wisdom of the teaching that John the Baptist brings is not something he's afraid of, but the power of the crowds is something he really does fear. I was talking to someone recently about the question of the dulos, the slave in the New Testament, and this person said, of course this makes sense. Everyone's a slave to something. And here we see even Herod the Tetrarch is a slave to the crowd. Herod cannot make a move if the crowd doesn't want him to make that move. He has to figure out how to go around the crowd to do it, but he cannot confront the crowd. He cannot do what the crowd does not want him to do. Significantly, the crowd considers John the Baptist a prophet. They want to listen to what he says. Whether they actually listen to what he says, that's a different question. But according to Herod, they consider him a prophet. They consider his words to be wise. What's Herod going to do when he's stuck between these words that he hates and this crowd who says, you can't touch that guy? Herod is stuck because, as you said, Father, he is a coward. He is a slave, but he is a coward and a slave to the crowd, not to God, not to wisdom, not to the kingdom of heaven, and definitely not to the word of John the Baptist. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.